Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chavla, and my guest today is the U.S. business editor of the Financial Times. Joining me from New York City is Andrew Edgeliff-Johnson. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Manas. So, Andrew, I mean, I know you've had quite the busy two weeks or so. Um, just yesterday, McDonald's announced plans to seize operations in Russia. And I think in many ways, it's it's quite the sort of watershed moment because it wasn't, you know, it was only until a couple of decades ago when McDonald's really was a symbol of capitalism, a symbol of capitalist diplomacy, uh, as you've noted. And there used to be a time when political scientists used to argue, you know, no two countries with the McDonald's uh, would ever fight each other. It's almost a kind of a very Fukuyama-esque sort of end of history narrative that perhaps didn't age very well. Um, Andrew, could you could you give us a bird's eye view, uh, you know, broadly the corporate response to the war in Ukraine? Thanks. Yes. Uh, well, I'll try. Um, I mean, clearly, it has been an incredibly busy sort of corporate story. That's really nothing to compare with the story that my colleagues in Ukraine and in that region are dealing with. But I think um, the corporate response has started with a fairly human concern response. I would say in the very early days of this war, even in the build-up to uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the primary concern for major Western brands operating in the region was, who do we have in Ukraine? Can we make sure they're safe? Do we need to get them out? Will our operations in Ukraine continue? But uh, is it even responsible to keep operating? That has shifted very rapidly over the first two, three weeks of the war to... What about our people in Russia? Uh, first of all, are they safe? Do we need to get them out? Um, second, can we ethically continue making money in Vladimir Putin's Russia in the current environment? And so this has been a migration. And I, and I imagine that we're not at the end of this story either. But to try and give you a sort of overview of where we're at now, um, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, the Yale School of Management professor, estimates that more than 300 major Western brands have now either completely cut ties with Russia or in some way curtailed their operations in the country. They've halted new investment, they've stopped advertising there, they've um, decided only to sell local brands rather than international brands, things like that. Um, this is on a scale and happening at a speed that we have never seen before. You know, you, some of your listeners will remember the apartheid era boycott of South Africa by Western brands in response to pressure, largely to consumer pressure. Um, that was big and historic at the time. It was nothing like this scale, though, and it didn't happen anywhere near so quickly. Um, you rem may remember a lot of companies ran from Saudi Arabia after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. That was much, much smaller uh, compared to this. So this is, we are, we are watching something really quite historic here in terms of companies weighting of their risks and responsibilities in the current geopolitical climate. Mm. And, you know, we were talking about this just before we started, but it, it's sort of, it's almost a perfect case study of how we look at perhaps ESG. I know ESG is, it's, it's a term that's been thrown around a lot in a lot of different ways in the last sort of five to 10 years. Um, I personally feel like we've always focused almost perhaps a bit too much on the E aspect of ESG and kind of neglected the social aspect of ESG. You know, uh, when we think about human rights, perhaps notably we think about, you know, Xinjiang and the Uyghur crisis, really the real sort of action of companies pulling out kind of only comes in when there's 
uh, mass perception, sort of mass belief in the idea that need to do that. You know, it by, in the Xinjiang case, at least until sort of 2017, 2018, we knew quite well everything going on. Um, it, it wasn't until 2019, I think, that, you know, H&M and the Nike type started pulling out. Um, so I'm always kind of puzzled by this sort of, uh, you know, dual access of optics uh, that are at play here, but also the actual sort of operational role that companies might play in propping up a regime like that of Putin's uh, that's sort of perpetrating these human rights atrocities. Um, but, but, you know, once again, politics perhaps has never been this front and center in boardrooms. So, I mean, the way I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about sort of four broad categories of the sort of risks that this might be. And, you know, you're more than welcome to sort of edit this or add some more to these. Um, but, but the first I see is, is broadly kind of economic, you know, uh, the way the West has responded, the way governments have responded in large part has been to wage an economic war, uh, kind of to do that at the cost of, you know, by not waging a military war, by not creating a NATO airspace, um, by sanctioning, uh, by removing Russia from the SWIFT uh, bank transfer system, you know, MasterCard and Visa pulling out, those sorts of things. Um, broadly speaking, what, what's the impact of that? Uh, and what's the impact of that for, for the average person? Uh, would you say that? Well, I think we are seeing a balance of economic and ESG factors weigh in the decision-making of these major Western multinationals. Somebody I spoke to this week described this as the first European war of the ESG era. And on the surface, um, what that means is companies are just super sensitive to stuff that their employees, their consumers, their government stakeholders um, are you know, concerned about. Um, so that really spans the spectrum from a sort of PR story of we don't want to look like the last person standing in Russia in our industry to a much more serious question of is the government going to put pressure on us to pull out? And I, it's quite a mixed story on how much pressure companies are actually feeling from governments. I'm, I'm not sure there's huge coordination at the government level to make companies a tool of that economic warfare, if you like. The economic factor from the company's point of view is real, and it's quite hard to separate from these other issues. But essentially, the sanctions the governments have announced, particularly European and US governments, mean that the ruble has collapsed, um, interest rates in Russia have shot up, and the outlook for the Russian economy is terrible for the foreseeable future. Now, if you go back and look at the way these companies were talking about Russia, even a few months ago on their earnings calls, a lot of the big Western brands were, they were not, there was not the sort of brick era excitement about Russia as the kind of the great emerging market that was going to lift their global growth. But they were talking about Russia as one of the strongest growing uh, markets, you know, smaller markets, if you like. Um, so there was a general expectation that Russia was going to be a, a good news story for a lot of these brands. Um, economically, there is a much, much weaker case now for staying in Russia. So that then brings you back to the ESG question of when we talk about the S in ESG, the social responsibilities of business, um, we're really talking about their responsibilities to different stakeholders, to consumers, to employees, to the communities in which they operate. If you look at the statements we've had from the likes of McDonald's or Starbucks or Coke or Pepsi, 
what they're talking about is a really difficult balancing act between the responsibilities to their employees and customers in Russia, balancing that against the responsibilities the employees and consumers elsewhere, including those in Ukraine. Um, so I think McDonald's said that it had 62,000 employees uh, in Russia. They're stakeholders too. So in the age of stakeholder capitalism, that is not an entirely simple equation. Just pulling out of Russia uh, might sound great in terms of showing support for Ukrainian employees, for Ukraine, for democracy, for freedom, for uh, all of the things that companies depend on for economic prosperity. But at the same time, are you just going to lay off 60 something thousand people? Are you going to leave consumers in the lurch who count on you for your products? And that we can explore this in more detail, but I think a lot of the food and drink uh, companies say, you know, we make baby food, we make dairy products, we make stuff that people actually, Russian, ordinary Russians uh, depend on, and our fight is not with ordinary Russians. Um, so as with all sanctions, if you like, the targeting of them is not easy. Right. And, you know, when we're talking about sort of those food companies, Danone might be a good example of one that's, you know, continue to continue sort of some of its operations. Um, and like you say, there's lots of competing interests. What I'm really curious about is in the conversations that you've had with different stakeholders, perhaps, you know, folks that are at the boardroom level in some of these organizations, um, what perspective tends to dominate those conversations? Is it uh, primarily kind of, is it firstly, uh, think about operationally, what role does the company play in propping up a regime or in, in potentially, you know, aiding the conflict? Is it the optics of being the last person uh, in the room, the last person in the industry to stay in the country? Is it perhaps, uh, you know, about really the stakeholders, the employees on the ground and how they can best aid in their welfare? Um, is there a sense of one that dominates more than the other? Absolutely. Um, and the one that dominates is the employee stakeholders around the world. The yeah biggest source of pressure that these companies are feeling right now is from their own employees uh, that started with their employees in Ukraine if they had them uh, but it's very much from the employees in the UK in continental Europe in the US um, in other parts of the world who are watching what's happening in Ukraine with horror and asking their CEOs what are we doing about it we have some power here we have some influence and whether you like corporate influence or not you know um there is no question that these companies do have influence and so there is a real push um from the ground up from employees within these organizations to do something um that's also expressed that employee focus also expressed itself very clearly in the earliest days of this crisis and it is still a factor for many companies in the security question of can we get our people to safety in both Ukraine and now Russia, where there is concern about people being conscripted, uh, concern about possible reprisals against executives of local executives of uh, Western firms that closed down. So people are, air, well, they were airlifting uh, their employees out before um, most sort of, uh, air traffic was out of Russia was closed down, but they're, they're busing people out. We've talked to security consultants who are literally sort of getting minibuses to get people to the border um, of Russia with, with other countries. So that that is a big concern. I think we are now 
those who have got through that sort of immediate urgent question are now having a broader discussion about the G in ESG and about the definition of their thinking of governance. You know, this has been very much about uh, is every group represented well in the boardroom? Um, in the past, it's, 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 you know, governance has, has really been a boardroom issue. There is now a different discussion happening, which has been building over the past couple of years for other reasons we can go into, about to geopolitical governance and what role companies play in propping up regimes that ultimately will prove to be catastrophically unfriendly to business when you see something happen like we've seen in Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I do think this will change the ESG discussion from something that was fairly easily dismissed as being about sunflowers and windmills on, on the front page of the annual report to something that's much more serious and much more systemic, much more of a question about the systemic role that companies play in global governance. Mm. I want to take a step back really quickly and just sort of think about where the push is coming from for these companies to take these actions, because correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of the way we're talking about this, at least perhaps because we're in the early stages of this war, it seems like it's companies themselves doing this. It's boardrooms themselves, uh, you know, making these actions. Uh, but we might well see for the sort of stragglers, the companies that, you know, the ones in their industry that do choose to, you know, uh, continue operating in Russia, that they face government pressure uh, from governments in the West uh, to perhaps seize operations and, you know, for particular reasons. Um, and, and I feel like that's, firstly, it's it, that's territory that's very unexplored, at least in recent times. Um, what, what are the potential risks there? But but could you also sort of illustrate a bit more kind of uh, in a more detailed way how, how that pressure works? I mean, short of just kind of legally banning, you know, all American companies from operating in Russia, in what sort of intricate ways can the American government, let's say, or the British government, let's say, apply pressure on these companies uh, to make certain actions? And what sort of precedence does that set? Well, we have written about the... UK business secretary bringing some, pulling some companies in for briefings and cozy, comfortable chats or very uncomfortable chats early in this war to basically get the message across that they were not helping by staying in Russia. Um, I haven't heard from the people I've been speaking to of a particularly coordinated similar effort in Washington. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out, but I think where this has happened has been principally in that group of companies which had very high profile, very economically important joint ventures with essentially the Russian government, with Russian state-sponsored enterprises, which were almost indistinguishable from the economic interests of Vladimir Putin and his circle. So I think this is one of the reasons why the first movers in this crisis were not the sort of consumer-sensitive, warm and fuzzy brands like the Danones and the Mars and Mondelez and people like that who are usually right up the, you know, the barricades uh, for any other sort of social crisis, political issue. It was those dirty old oil companies that pulled out first. Um, and essentially, you know, if you are running an oil company in partnership with a Russian state and enterprise, it's absolutely crystal clear that you are funding Vladimir Putin and, and his war on Ukraine. So that it, it was just that much more 
uh, untenable for those companies. And I think governments made that clear, even if they were doing so quietly. I think the pressure on the more consumer-facing companies depends greatly on how many people they have had in Russia. Um, I think the first movers were actually often those that didn't have much at stake, either economically in terms of Russia being a big market or in terms of having many people on the ground. So Apple was a very high profile early mover, um, early lever from Russia, so was Nike. Neither of them have thousands of people in Russia. They're mostly operating through resellers and things like that. When you come to McDonald's or Starbucks or Unilever or Danone or Coca-Cola or PepsiCo, they have very deep roots in, in Russia. They have a lot of people on the ground. And that is a much more complicated situation as they try to balance the, the interests of those different stakeholders. Right. I mean, uh, when you talk about big oil companies, I'm reminded of, of Shell and uh, they you know, might not be entirely on top of this, but initially they decided to still keep buying Russian oil. Then they decided to stop that. And then they decided to you know create this. Uh, they, they said they would use the profits from all that oil and then pull that into this humanitarian aid fund. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, short of, say, you know, outright divestment and outright just sort of donating uh, assets and money, is there an active role that you feel, you know, corporates, either, you know, big oil companies or very consumer-centric companies, is there an active role they can play in, in kind of helping this crisis? Well, um, you're right to single out the Shell example, because it's a very interesting example of this Um they did pull back from Russia, and that yet they they then bought a, a quantity of Russian oil. Um, we then saw the chief executive of, of Shell come out and say, "We're sorry." It, uh, there's a statement he put on on LinkedIn's LinkedIn saying, uh, "Yeah, that decision was not the right one, and we are sorry," which you don't often hear from uh, from the average oil major. So there is a fascinating question about the social responsibilities of fossil fuel companies right now. Um, they have been the very last companies that the average ESG investor would touch. And now there is an argument starting to bubble up that if they can keep the lights on and the heat on in Germany, um, or if they can provide an alternative to Russian and or even Saudi um, oil or Venezuelan oil or, or fossil fuels that come from other difficult parts of the country, uh, difficult parts of the world, then are they actually doing God's work? Um, I think we're away from that being widely accepted, but that is a debate you're also seeing with defense companies right now. Uh, you're now seeing an argument bubble up from people working in the ESG investing arena that maybe it's time to look at Saab, the uh, uh, you know, the, the European defense company as uh, as part of the war efforts, as one of the good guys. So that everything is up in the air, I would say. Yeah. And going back to some of the big oil companies, I mean, there's a big, you know, climate risk associated with that as well. Lots of people talking about the impact that that sort of divestment is going to have on our global shift to move towards cleaner forms of energy. Uh, talk to me a bit more about that. What does that conversation look like? Well, my colleagues on the FT Energy team are, better informed on this than I am, but they've been in Houston this week for a big energy conference. And one of the themes that they've picked up talking to people there has been a frustration uh, among the energy industry that investors with this ESG agenda 
have held energy companies back from investing, from drilling, you know, from producing more fossil fuels because of their environmental concerns. Now, whether you are, you know, depending, however sympathetic you are to the environmental concerns, I think we're now in a situation where there is a very unexpected debate about how many of those concerns we're willing to put to one side in the short term to put pressure on Vladimir, Vladimir Putin and his, his regime. So uh, this is highly complicated. I think the energy companies are in a unique position here, but they are in many ways, they're finding un unexpected bedfellows, I would say, right now. Mm. Um, I just want to move to another angle. I mean, one that I've been sort of really just seething to talk to you about, uh, the, the sort of China angle and the geopolitical risk that poses, because surely uh, the argument could be made, you know, we've got these Western companies pulling out, and I'm skeptical that there's a, you know, very credible Chinese alternative to a Big Mac. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm a bit more sympathetic to the idea that a Xiaomi phone could very well replace, you know, iPhone and, and their, you know, Apple's production in the region. And so there's obvious sort of concerns there about a growing Russian-Chinese alliance, but a growing Russian dependency on Chinese tech, on Chinese utilities and energy and, and, and the rest. Um, is that something that worries you? Well, after Apple announced its pullout, we uh, we ran we, we published comments from Russian consumers saying, "I guess I'm going to have to get a Xiaomi phone now instead of an iPhone. I guess I'm going to have to get a Lada instead of a BMW." Um, so th this is uh, a topic of conversation uh, in 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 Russia right now. I think my you know, most of my conversations have been with executives in the U.S. over the past few weeks. They are very conscious of that competitive threat, if you like, the possibility that Chinese brands now get us a beachhead. They have an amazing opportunity to, to, to seize market share, to seize territory. But honestly, I haven't spoken to anybody for whom that's the primary concern or consideration in their decision about whether to pull out from Russia. And most of them will preface any such thought by saying it's kind of, this is not the moment to be thinking about market share. Um, what I have heard much more frequently is people speculating about what one or two of them call the Beijing effect, which is how do my actions in Russia get read in Beijing? Um, is are the Chinese authorities watching what large multinationals mm. do in Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine and saying, aha, that's what they do if we take Taiwan. Uh, and pulling out of Russia, which may be 2% of global revenues for many of these brands, um, is a very different matter from pulling out of China. China which is one of the world's biggest consumer markets and obviously a source, an enormously important source of supply for most of these companies. Hmm. For, for, from China's perspective, do you see that 
making a big difference though? Do you see that? I mean, like you mentioned, because Russia is such a smaller case study, do you see that person being a credible kind of example that, you know, I Xi Jinping and his associates might be looking at? Um, but secondly, do you see that really that, you know, the West broadly speaking is pulled together uh, in their sort of economic and their sanction war? Do you see that as something that, you know, as might credibly deter China from taking over Taiwan? Well, I'll leave it to my more expert colleagues in China to really give you the view on that. What I will say, you know, from what I've seen through my lens sitting in New York, looking at US companies and, and, and their operations in China, what's ha been happening to them is this is coming in the context of an already incredibly difficult climate for Western brands in China. We have seen uh, the Chinese authorities apparently sanction sort of uh, consumer protests and boycotts um, against Western multinationals like Nike and H&M um, for speaking out over forced labor in Xinjiang, for example. Uh, we've seen some of those companies you know, remove that language from their websites in response. We have just gone through um, uh, the Olympics, of course, the Winter Olympics. And you know, the corporate story on every Olympics is which brands are sponsoring it and just how much money they're going to throw at the advertising this year. It was near silence this year when we you know, turned turned our attention to writing those stories. And we actually, we decided to contact, you know, all 13 of the top sponsors of the International Olympic Committee. Um, that's Coca-Cola, P&G, Airbnb, Intel, Visa, you know, Toyota, Allianz, very, very big multinationals. Um, to ask them how, what they thought, how they viewed about uh, China's treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, not a single one of them would comment. So there is acute sensitivity to Western brands speaking out uh, about uh, these, uh, this kind of issue, whether, whether it's a war, whether it's persecution of minority. I mean, putting it broadly, about human rights issues. And I think to your earlier question about the S in ESG, the social issues that ESG is supposed to cover, I think we are going to see coming out of this period, this war, a much more disciplined and focused discussion about human rights. And I think these are the most complex issues for Western businesses to navigate. Yeah. Um, I want to talk again about, just go back talking about the G kind of in ESG, because one thing I've noticed a lot in my work and is, is the way that boardrooms often think about, the way the boardrooms think about political risk, the way they think about human rights in ESG, for far too long, perhaps even into the ESG kind of revolution, has been very much like a box ticking exercise. It's been very much, you know, some very kind of low level due diligence into the supply chain of their operations saying, no, we're not, you know, harming any human rights practices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not been the, the sort of kind of uh, very comprehensive, all encompassing effort that it might appear to be, perhaps, um, with that addition of PR and optics in it. So um, I'm curious, like, we were only, you know, two weeks into the war, but in terms of longer and longer term impact of the war, um, do you see this really moving the needle in a substantial way on how we think about ESG? Um, do you do you reckon we're going to start thinking about it in a far more, you know, different, more substantial way? I think if we focus this on political risk, I think it will change the way boardrooms think about 
about political risk. I think it changes the way they think about geopolitical risk. I think this was something that they worried about in more frontier markets, as some of them call them, uh, but didn't think about in the major markets of Europe, for example. Uh, I think there is a much more urgent consideration about, okay, what's the outlook for Poland? You know, what's, what's the outlook, obviously, for Russia? Uh, these are not small markets for most of the brands that we're talking about. But I think this discussion has already started, um, certainly in the US where I sit, because of domestic political developments. And if you turn the clock back to 2016, um, the Brexit vote, the election of Donald Trump, we all wrote about these as a rejection of the elites, uh, a sort of sticking two fingers up at the system. Well, these companies are the system. They're part of that system, and they thought they understood it. Um, they thought they had a measure of influence over it. Uh, through their political donations, for example, or through their lobbying. And lo and behold, it didn't go that way. And suddenly we have a more populous political climate in not just the UK and the US, but in several other countries, where suddenly they're not getting their way on major policies. And so even in the Trump and under the Trump administration in the US, for example, uh, while companies may have really enjoyed the tax cuts that the Republican Congress got through in 2017, the corporate tax cuts, they were beside themselves at the immigration policies, uh, at the trade policies, particularly the trade war with China. And they felt that they were not getting a hearing you know, for all of their supposed, um, the supposed closeness of corporate America with the Republican Party that broke down. So on the one hand, you have this kind of pragmatic fact that the old way of navigating politics isn't working as it used to and you know cynics on particularly on the left might think that you write a check to your local senator or congressperson and they vote in lockstep with your agenda that's not been happening you know instead you have um very traditional republicans like mitch mcconnell saying Business should stay out of politics, you know, while still pocketing those checks. Um, so, on the, so on the one hand, you have the fact that the old system is not really working as it used to, which is a shock to these companies. On the other hand, you have this new consciousness of the potential systemic political risks facing business. Now, the most acute example of this uh, was in the US around the time of the 2020 election uh, and the, um, the, the, the January the 6th um, uh, invasion of the Capitol building. But that period over about three months from the build-up of the, of the election to January the 6th saw acute anxiety from business and CEOs having to speak up on several occasions saying, no, you can trust the results of the election and we need to trust the results of the election. And we do not support this attempt to overturn it. And that gave a lot of CEOs a visceral understanding for the first time, something that they'd been able to take for granted, which is that economic stability relies on political stability. Right. Um, I want to go back really quickly to, to sort of the, the, the case of Russia and Ukraine. Um, and just get um, kind of a bird's eye view again, because 
Um, one difficulty I always have uh, is, you know, there's these trackers. I know the FT did, did a piece on four different ways we can sort of see which companies are leaving, which companies are staying. Um, but I always find it quite hard to sort of really understand how much slack do corporates still have left? How many companies are there still remaining to pull out? Um, so broadly, where's that discussion at? But also, how are the Russians adapting uh, to the companies pulling out? And do they have anything else left in their arsenal? Well, the question of how the Russians are adapting is a little hard uh, to know because the restrictions on reporting from Russia are such that uh, we, we don't have great information at the moment um, coming out of Moscow and also in Petersburg. But um, there are still um, dozens of major Western companies remaining in the country. Most of them are in businesses where they have certainly convinced themselves that they're providing essential goods or services and that if they pull out they will be causing more harm to russian consumers than to the um, russian government i think there is still pressure on those that remain to pull out those this is a very fast moving situation so i would not rule out uh, further changes in the posture of those brands in russia uh, remember that some of the big brands that have uh, made announcements about Russia in recent days have only talked about partial pullouts, so they may they may be forced into more uh, complete cutting of ties. I think there is also a question starting to bubble up now of what's the plan for the brands that have pulled out for getting back in? What would they need to see to reassure them? about getting back in, because to flash back to what happened, for example, with Saudi Arabia after the Jamal Khashoggi murder, we know that several Western brands managed to reconcile themselves to going back into the Saudi market fairly quickly. You know, that, that was they, when the headlines were all over that story, they, they pulled back. Uh, when the news agenda had moved on, they quietly slipped back in. So I think that's, uh, that could happen in Russia. And if it happens, I think there are huge reputational risks for those companies if they are deemed to have made the wrong call there. Um, I think it's going to take, going back to the G and ESG, it's going to take a real governance process. Yeah, boards will have to say, we need some rigor in our thinking about what the trigger would be, what would allow us to reopen in mm. Russia right now. Um, you, you need to prepare, not just for something going wrong and you're pulling out, but for, okay, what would need to go right for us to be able to go, get back in? Um, because that, that will be the next chapter, I think, of this story. Right. And, and what would be the ideal scenario, would you say, for some of these businesses? Because surely with the way the war is going, I don't see it, I mean, even in a best or worst case scenario, it's a very kind of tricky um, sort of on the ground reality where we might not see you know the same borders for ukraine that there were previously we might not see the same kind of uh uh independent uh government in ukraine um so so what what for say a business would be the ideal scenario um and what would be kind of a reasonable scenario would you say of them pulling the trigger on going back in uh, yeah i think this depends hugely on what's what the realistic whether there are good scenarios that are realistic in the uh, in the war, frankly, but broadly speaking, you know, the borders of Russia and Ukraine are not within corporate America's control or any multinationals control. Um, what is within their control is the process 
that they go through and the principles that they follow in making these decisions. And I think if we have learned anything through the ESG investing era, through this era of stakeholder capitalism, is that a company's stakeholders value transparency more than they ever have. And so explaining their thinking, explaining the process that has led them to the decision that they take, whatever that decision ends up being, will be almost as important as the decision. I think people want to know that they have involved the key stakeholders, that they've consulted employees, that they've listened to the concerns of consumers, that they are in lockstep with, with Western governments on what is acceptable and what is not. Andrew, we've talked about lots of quite sort of grim things in this episode and, and, and certainly perhaps really not even touched on um, quite really the sort of the humanitarian tragedy of things. But, uh, you know, I, we always like to end these things on, on a, on a so were you going to say something? Well, I, I, I was going to say that I think this is one area where companies have really risen to the occasion, the humanitarian side. The, what we've seen in this period where boards have been furiously trying to work out what the right thing to do is in Russia, it's really no great dispute about what the right thing to do is in Ukraine. This process started with a very employee-focused question of how do we make sure our people are safe? How do we make sure we're looking after them economically? Can we find them jobs in our offices in neighboring countries? Um, and it has now migrated to a humanitarian effort, which is seeing millions of pounds, dollars, euros donated to, um, to NGOs, to charities with deep experience in dealing with, uh, with refugees, with resettled populations, uh, and bringing to bear the logistical skills as well as the cash of these multinationals. So there is a lot of coordination going on between big brands in you know, who's got sleeping bags, who's got um, stoves, who's got tents, um, where do we need to get them? How can we get them there with all the logistical snarl-ups in, in that region right now? Um, there is a lot of good work being done. And I think it's very easy to dismiss as PR those statements that we get from big brands saying, you know, we're doing nice things for the people of Ukraine. But I think in this case, um, there's some genuinely good work being done. It plays to the strengths of business. It is a reminder that that is part of the role they play in our societies. Entirely. I think it's quite inspiring the way people have stepped up. And I think often it's been as a corporate response, but I've just seen people on LinkedIn as well, you know, uh, executives in, in Eastern Europe offering up their homes to refugees that are trying to resettle. And so that's, you know, one of the sort of few heartwarming things that can come out of a tragedy like this, I suppose. But I suppose that's that's, a, that's an optimistic note to end on, uh, Andrew. Incredibly fascinating discussion and one we're going to keep thinking about uh, as, as the war evolves over the coming weeks. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. And to find out more about London Politica, please visit our website, londonpolitica.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. But that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.